You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to WCAT Radio's Vows, Vocations, and Promises, Discerning the Call of Love. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Urlachus, and my daughter, Grace Marie Urlachus, is co-hosting the special edition of this program. Today, Grace Marie and I are honored to have the opportunity to interview Father Leo Petalinghan, the founder of Plating Grace, an international movement focused on the theology of food, the renewal of the family in Christ. Father Leo was ordained in 1999. He is a member of the Community of Consecrated Life, Volantas Day. Father Leo is an award-winning chef, radio and TV show host, including the host of Savoring Faith on EWTN. He is the author of four best-selling books, highly sought-after international speaker who travels the world educating and inspiring about the theology of food. Father Leo is the founder and chair of the nonprofit organization, The Table Foundation, which works to harvest the power of food to do good one meal at a time, bringing people together around a common table. Father, I am delighted to, and honored to have you joining us today. Thanks. It's my pleasure. Would you start us off with a prayer? Certainly. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Loving God, we ask for your guidance in our conversation. We ask you to help us to understand our words, to give glory to you, but also how to put these words into practice. And may we be fed with the good things that you want to give to us so that we in turn can share it with others. And especially for those who go without, we ask all of this with the prayers of our Blessed Mother and the angels and saints through Christ our Lord, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father, welcome. I am just thrilled that you are, are here to join us today. Um, this program, Vows, Vocations, and Promises, uh, it is uh, dedicated to the, the universal call to holiness um, and exploring the various vocations that people have. I have heard and shared a lot of really interesting vocation stories over the years, um, but I can hardly wait to hear yours. I am curious as how a break dancing, double black belt in martial arts, trained chef, heard and answered the call of God to serve in the ministerial priesthood. Could you share a bit about your vocation and your vocation story? Sure. I um, grew up pretty much a typical teenager, not necessarily liking church, but not willing to fight parents about it just because there were bigger things to do. And I did assume even as a child that church wasn't there to hurt me. So I never felt like the need to, to rebel too badly. I didn't enjoy it, but I didn't care for it. Um, and so more importantly, I think what happened was I was, as I was growing up, people were not afraid to challenge me, including a mission preacher who invited me and everybody at the church to come to at least one night of a mission that he was putting on. It was during the Lenten season. And he specifically said that if you don't want to go to church after this, you don't have to go. So I kind of took him up on the offer and I just wound up not only appreciating what he had to say, but being interested. And all he did was explain the basics of the faith, especially the mass, he did a teaching mass. And it was at that moment that I realized that mass was something I did not understand. But if I actually was willing to just put myself into it, I could get something out of it. And that something was really a someone to get God out of mass in the Eucharist. So that actually started the kind of trajectory of just seeing how church wasn't there to hurt me, but was there to help if I was willing to engage, which I think is one of the big struggles in today's modern world is that um, 
people assume so much they think they know the faith, but they haven't actually engaged it. And we're willing to talk to people who challenge them. And so, you know, I had some people who were willing to challenge me about what I believed in a respectful way and patient way. Um, I was also given the opportunity to go on a pilgrimage. I went to Medjugorje, which was at one point known as Yugoslavia. This was all in the 80s, mind you. And it was there that I saw the universal church, how big it was. And, and interestingly enough, how, how young it was, um, especially when I saw people from Europe, you know, who did not have the chance to practice their faith. They come in droves to go to a pilgrimage site and, you know, not necessarily for the miracles, but maybe for the universal experience of church. And so that gave me a bigger view of what church was like. And then after coming home from that, I got more involved in youth ministry. I started to help out and eventually direct the, the, um, one of the music groups at church, uh, started teaching religious education and, and really just start to defend the Catholic faith from people, especially, um, my friends who were starting to kind of move into kind of Protestant churches. And so this really gave me a chance to kind of reflect and think and to see, you know, if God is real, and I believe that God was, what did God have in mind for me? And so it turned into the priesthood, you know, and that was a slow go. It took um, a year and a half after I graduated from college to enter into seminary. I went to seminary at the Catholic University of America for a degree in philosophy. And then I was sent to the North American College. I studied at the Gregorian University for my, um, my, my bachelor's degree. And then I was given the opportunity and I took it to study for my pontifical licentiate degree, Mariology, which is the study of the Virgin Mary in, in the life of Christ and salvation history. So it was a very kind of slow long process but it was pretty intentional i think at least on god's part he doesn't want to rush anything and so i just started asking the questions and i was willing to hear the answers and every step of the way god just kept giving me a good answer for why not only to believe in the church but also to be a part of it and then of course in a unique way as a priest wow thank you very much for sharing how important was your family in the vocational discernment. Um, did you come to them with your questions? Were they supportive? Um, how, how, did your, how did your interactions with your family play out in terms of your vocational discernment? So we're a pretty traditional Catholic family. So we, church just was in the picture. Again, not that we cared much for it as kids because, you know, I mean, there's better things to do like play outside and video games at the time. But again, it wasn't something that we knew was intentionally hurting us. It just took an hour, you know, right. and of course there was a lot of fussing with like getting ready and being on time. And, you know, mom and dad just kind of sometimes quizzing us with what does this all mean? We also did pray the rosary as a family pretty intentionally. Again, pretty boring, didn't like it, but wasn't going to kill me. And I, I never felt bad after praying the rosary. I always felt kind of good, peaceful. That is probably one of the effects, that grace that comes from regular family prayer. And, and mom and dad were not afraid to talk about their faith. So, you know, it was part of who we were. Again, though, you know, growing up in the 80s and experiencing a little bit more of the world, I wasn't necessarily as keen on it. I wasn't a terrible kid. I just wasn't super into my faith on an intellectual level. Sure. And so my parents' faith was much more of piety, and that just really did very little for me. I respected it. I just, 
it just never did anything for my own mind, my own intellect. And so only when I was challenged and then, you know, we didn't have the internet at the time, go figure, um, you had to do research on your own. So, so I investigated some things, read some pamphlets where I could get my hands on, you know, Catholic materials, um, and, and then just actually started learning from other preachers. Again, before the internet, we used to have these cassette tapes of, you know, of, of pretty popular preachers doing what is now known as apologetics, but it was really just from their heart sharing their faith. So it was because of being exposed to it, because I allowed myself to be exposed to it, I actually sought it out. I became a little bit more intellectually converted um, because my mom and dad already just kind of instilled piety, but it wasn't enough. I needed to have some intellectual stimulus. Sounds like it was an awesome foundation, though, that you had a fertile, fertile ground, fertile, fertile vineyard there. Um, you mentioned the rosary. Um, could you talk a little bit about, as you were discerning, your prayer life? Um, what was... What was your go-to prayer? Was it adoration? Was it the rosary? What, where did you find your peace? Where did you, where, as you were trying to, to grapple with this vocation um, and the call, what particular aspect of prayer um, did you find yourself drawn to? So I started going to mass daily, actually. Um, and at the time I was heavily involved in in competitions, uh, martial art competitions. So I was, I was pretty healthy and, you know, pretty athletic and, and doing a lot of working out. And during some of my exercises, I would just pray parts of the rosary. Uh, and then, of course, as I'm driving to and from work or school, uh, I would pray a little bit of the rosary. So I would be praying throughout the day, the rosary. So that was a, a real important part because it was easy to do, to be honest with you. Um, and it was just kind of repetitious. I did start really getting involved in um, apologetics and just reading a lot more of the lives of the saints. And that really kind of helped me to see their logic and hearing about their conversion stories. Um, adoration was not as uh, available as it might be now, you know, in yeah. the 80s. I mean, we were still suffering from a misinterpretation of Vatican II. And um, I remember even hearing some priests, sadly to say, you know, comparing the Eucharist to quote unquote cookie worship. But I do remember going to adoration with my family uh, on certain feast days. And so that was a part of my life. Um, you know, praying the family rosary again was, was just something we did at least on a weekly basis. And I even remember um, having relatives who were either consecrated religious or even priests, ordained priests, they would come over and, you know, we would be sitting at the dinner table and talking. So I think a lot of my go-to prayer time was, was sporadic. The only thing that's consistent was when I was kind of exercising and, and praying the rosary. Oh, also scriptures, um, you know, strangely enough, just kind of entering into debate with other people about what this could mean in the scripture. So it became a form of fascination and kind of interpretation, but ultimately meditation. What role did food play in your discernment? It didn't. It really didn't have any play whatsoever uh, because I never thought about, you know, becoming a priest and a chef. 
food was a part of my life. It wasn't a part of discernment. You know, as a Filipino American family, we, uh, we just had a lot of parties. My mom was just a consummate, you know, hostess and she, uh, we always had guests. It was a little fatiguing actually, because, you know, there wasn't really any free time with the sports, with the schoolwork, with the job. Um, but food was a big part of my family growing up. So eating together was just something we did. And whenever we didn't, we, we made it a point to make sure that there was some sort of family meal throughout the week. So, so that was really it. I mean, food did not really begin to kick in until I was a seminarian living at the North American college in Rome and having a retreat led by a lay woman. She was actually a psychotherapist. And she was talking about, you know, intentions, desire. She, she was actually uh, pretty, pretty direct in talking about, you know, maintaining purity in the heart, you know, dealing with, with the humanity of sexual temptations and, and all of those things that deal with the body. And so as part of her presentation during a, um, during a mealtime where we were eating in silence, she led us through a meditation about food. And so it got me thinking about it and, you know, somehow just a simple conversation about the power of food led me to adoration and just looking at that host and the monstrance and then just really all of a sudden just kind of developing this theology of food. This was again in the 90s. So, you know, the Food Network wasn't even on yet. But towards the end of my seminary, the Food Network started up and and I, I, I had already known how to cook because my mom was a home economics teacher and I was always in the kitchen with her. But even when I went to Italy, I was fascinated by their food culture. So I started to investigate it more personally and even to some degree professionally with some cooking courses. There was a satellite school uh, with the Cordon Bleu in Perugia and that I would frequent semi-regularly. And so I started taking some of these courses, learning more about it, meeting chefs, and it just kind of nurtured my faith because one of the things that we enjoyed doing most was just having dinner. But more importantly, having dinner at the seminary, we had a kitchen that we could sign up for and rent, so to speak. And so I just became one of the regulars up there cooking for friends and even other Italians that would come up and we would share recipes about Italian food and I would Showed them how to make ribs and hamburgers. They still didn't get it, but you know, they're learning. <laughs> um, Grace Marie and I and our family, we've been to to Rome to the NAC. Um, we had the privilege of singing for the the Holy Father for the um, closing mass uh, um, during the Year of Mercy uh, and the consistory. Um, and as you're speaking about Rome and you're speaking about your experience there in seminary, I'm envisioning just the, the beauty of how the, the, the restaurants, the cafes are placed right there next to every one of these incredible basilicas, churches, um, holy sites, and how it could have all come together for you there in that setting in a unique way that it would not have any place else. That's correct. Um, you know, Europe, in particular, Romance language Europe, they take food very seriously. And um, the, I think the whole, I mean, this is just true for around the world. The reason why Rome is so vibrant is because the churches are prominent and the restaurants are plentiful. You know, and that, that's just the reality. When, when you can be fed in spirit 
as well as in body. Uh, but then when you go to the markets and you see the freshness, you kind of, you're struck intellectually by how Europeans eat. They don't, I mean, this is no criticism of anyone, but they, they shop daily. They don't go shopping for a month with like boxes of things that have been processed and stored in their, you know, garage. And then they, you know, shop once a month. No, for Italians, grocery shopping was a daily activity. Um, and so they would be getting the freshest, the most local, the healthiest, really. And, and it was an experience. It was an encounter of community that they have naturally. And unfortunately, our experience of food and, and sourcing our own products, it's so, it's a little unnatural. It's a little disconnected. And I think you can see what the effects are. We just have a less healthy approach to food than, say, our European counterparts. As you bringing this up, it's reminding me of exactly like the experience of going to a dinner in Italy and you're counting the forks and you're like, oh my goodness, it's going to be this many courses. But at the same time, the very fact that that's happening is that community, you know, that you're sharing a long meal with people. It's not like food is a communal experience. It's not just... I'm going to come in, I'm going to eat in 15 minutes, and I'm going to leave. It has something a lot more to it than just nourishing the body. Yeah, that's very true. Um, you know, meals in Italy, if you're going to a restaurant, it could take a couple hours for sure. And they're very attentive to portion control and the mm -hmm. timing of the food so that when you walk out of there, you're not stuffed. But you are, as they would say, contento, you're content. Uh, because they know how to kind of space it out, limit the portions, give your body time to digest, you know, and the beverages are just as necessary to the mm -hmm. meal and just the food. And so they just have a, a more mature understanding of things like alcohol. I'm not saying that they don't have problems with alcohol. I mean, that's just true for the world, but they have a deeper appreciation for it, um, as well as for the food culture, knowing that making pasta is a labor of love. Right. And so they do have a culture that celebrates food. Now, in America, we're developing it. Mm -hmm. We already have had a great food culture, but I think we were also just inundated with the amount of fast food and mm -hmm. processed food. You know, and all of that is ultimately just food. Right. But the more disconnected we are to what is natural, to what is fresh, to what mm -hmm. is vibrant, um, the more disconnected we are to the ones who make the food. So we That's have a relationship with a processing plant than we do with the local farmer. That's very well expressed. Yeah, that's a great point. Could you tell me a little bit about your community, um, Volantis Day? Uh, I love the, the website saying yes with Mary to God's will and the set of three fives. Um, could you explain a little bit about this incredible community that you're a part of? Yeah, it was Pius XII that actually, prior to Vatican II, that established a new form of consecrated life called the Secular Institute. So on one hand, you have religious, which is usually founded by a founder, you know, preferably a saint uh, or someone who is definitely holy. And they have a specific calling, a charism. They, they want to work with, for example, Franciscans working with the poor, Dominicans working with education and preaching. Then you'll have, you know, um, 
the, the Zavarians doing some teaching. And then you'll have even like the Jesuits working also with, with kind of education and a loose affiliation to what the Holy Father needs to be done. So that's the charism-based religious orders. Then you have diocesan, which is subject to doing what the bishop needs you to do. And that's actually called secular, secular priests. And so the difficulty is that after, you know, after the age of enlightenment, the age of industrial revolution and, and just modernism creeping in, Pius XII discovered that, that people were not coming to the church and the church wasn't actually going to them. The religious communities are busy doing their own charism. So it was almost as if it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it certainly is, to create another form of religious life, consecrated life, and they call it the secular institutes, so that we would have the responsibility of entering into the secular world, but with the consecration of a religious community. And so Voluntas Dei was actually founded prior to Vatican II, um, but then it really developed after Vatican II. And it was something that started my community, particularly in Quebec, Trois-Rivières, in, you know, French Canada. And the founder, his name is Father Marie, Louis-Marie Perrault. It's a holy man, very kind of wise for his day. And he was asked by the bishop to start a secular institute. And he originally had one for men, and then a type of the secular institute for women, but then it evolved into a true community where you have consecrated, ordained members alongside with consecrated lay people. So they're lay people, but they are consecrated. And our, our charism is to um, spread fraternity and brotherhood in Jesus Christ. So it's pretty simple. But that basically means wherever we go. And so there's going to be a secular look to the work that I do as a secular institute priest. That's why I'm in restaurants, on my food trucks, speaking at, you know, conferences, whether they be religious or even secular conferences. You know, some of our members do things in, in different universities or hospitals or chaplaincies at various institutions in advocacy work and education. So there's a lot of different things that we do in the world, but as a leaven, and to just try to be a presence to the secular world. So that's who we are. That's what we do. Um, our motto is to say yes, as the Virgin Mary did. And St. Paul is, is a pretty important figure for us, too, because he was sent outside, kind of like the church's you know, jurisdiction. He went to the pagans. He went to the non to, to, to the people who never considered themselves part of God's covenant, our Jewish brothers and sisters. So we're a missionary group, and our job is to be a leaven in society and to bring Christ's presence and brotherhood wherever we go, even in the midst of the world. It's a beautiful community. I was so impressed with what I had seen on the website. And I've got to confess that I, I was not familiar with this particular community. I'm a secular Carmelite. So uh, I, I understand the living, the charism in the world. Um, the, the second five, the three fives, the, the practicing the presence of God rings so much with uh, our brother Lawrence of the, the resurrection and practicing the presence of God. Um, absence of criticism and absence of complaint 
explaining the being of service, the uh, availability and the peacemaking as I was doing diligence for the interview and watching your previous interviews and, and going through your YouTube videos and all sorts of things, I would see how you have really lived out this beautiful charism, um, uh, your food truck, um, uh, just it, that one aspect of your ministry brings so much of all of this together. Um, could you talk about that? Could you talk about your food truck and, and how it brings together um, what sh your, your, your ministry? Um, and this yeah, so, so you mentioned the three fives, which is basically a way to describe our spirituality. Three sets of fives. The first set of fives are prayers that we say, you know, um, prayer, meditation, scriptures, devotion to Mary, and to, and to, um, and to devotion to the Eucharist. So those are five things that are supposed to be done daily. The second set of fives are attitudes. And the attitudes, as you just mentioned, it, practicing the presence of God, absence of complaint, absence of destructive criticism, and then peacemaking and being of service to others. So that's the second set of fives. The third set of fives are very personal. It's where you have to manifest God's presence into the world at least five times a day. And to be honest with you, I mean, sometimes I'm happy if I can just get to two or three, you know, where I'm really just making God incredibly intentionally present. So part of my work, again, I am a professional chef with the training that I have and, and cooking in kitchens around the world. And I have a TV show called Savoring Our Faith, where I'm just connecting faith and food to the culture and then cooking a meal to help remember the visit. So there's a lot of that there. But with the books, I've just discovered that people can watch me cook. They can read about me cooking. They can hear a talk where I'm cooking, but they don't really taste my food. And so there was an original thought to have a restaurant, but thank God we didn't because then COVID started up and it was a mess. Um, so one of my board members suggested that we look into a food truck. And I had always been fascinated by that. I've cooked in restaurants before, but I'll be honest, cooking on a food truck is like five times harder. But I also kind of took on the objective to work with people coming out of the prison system or people coming from disadvantaged communities. And so we're, you know, hiring people who might need a little bit of extra attention. Sure. Um, and, and boy, that it's not easy. It's, it's just not easy because I need to make sure that the standards of cooking and service are high. That's just how I have been raised. That's how I've been trained. And that's what I expect. And, and we're dealing with a culture that maybe don't have or share those expectations, nor do they have the skill set. So I've got to really pull back and work with all of that. Um, now, we're only in our second year. We dedicated the truck on May the 1st, 2021. And so we're just kind of in our second year and we're working through it. But I can proudly say... Our food is really good to the point where we've won now two years in a row a People's Choice Awards at a food truck festival. And um, we have created our individual sauces that are now online. People love the sauces. And they just love the concept of our food, which is international comfort flavors. So you can get a quesadilla, a noodle stir fry, or a salad. And then from there, you just make some choices. Do I want chicken, beef, shrimp, or roasted vegetables? And our meats are all prime and they're sous vide. So it's a cooking technique that really elevates the game and the flavors and the texture. And then I created, you know, five individual sauces, which are now bottling and making available to people. And all of that gets integrated into a composed dish. So you have a lot of choices from one truck. You could do something from Asia. 
Asian Island, Barbecue USA, Creamy Parisian, Latin Chimifresca, or Italian Seaside. So from one truck, you could go international, just like the Catholic Church. I loved it. I, I, I was jealous that we didn't have it near us. I know you're it's in Baltimore, um, but as I was looking through your menu, and the prices are very reasonable, um, but looking and seeing all the choices that you had and being able to pick, okay, a quesadilla and and then do shrimp, uh, just th- that you were able to pick and choose, uh, and you could truly have an international meal. Um, we're an international family. I have eight children, uh, five the old-fashioned way, and three adopted uh, internationally. So I have a, a young lady from Ethiopia, and I have two from Guatemala, and then the rest of us. So our table is often very uh, international, um, and uh, your food truck spoke to that. I love what you're doing with the mission of that food truck, um, bringing in those and who need a hand um, and using food uh, to as part of the ministry, um, giving a skill to others. Uh, it's just it weaves so many beautiful layers of Catholicism there and brings that Catholicism out to the road um, to share with others. Uh, I saw that uh, your auxiliary bishop uh, blessed the uh, food truck on the feast of St. Joseph the Worker. Um, again, I just I thought that was incredible that the saintly presence of St. Joseph and having him right there with you as in your mission. Um, uh, just incredible. In the year of St. Joseph, too, uh, 2021 was dedicated to St. Joseph, and uh, we wanted to talk about the dignity of work and the whole idea of being able to provide dignified work. And so my objective is to try to bring in people, a small team, train them so that by the end of this year, they'll be more viable to a more you know, self-sustaining job. I don't want them to work on my food truck forever. I want them to make sure that they're using this time for training, make a little bit of money, develop a little bit of a relationship and support, some community, uh, but also to do some own personal discernment. What do they think God is asking them to do? And then, you know, using us in a sense as a stepping stone. Um, I will be very honest right now. It is almost impossible to find employees, every restaurant that I know, everyone in the service hospitality industry, we're struggling with just trying to find employees. So uh, we've been praying really hard to find someone who can kind of help with this because, you know, it's not like my job, but, but it is a ministry. And I don't have always all the time to do that because I'm filming the show and writing some books and and also traveling with a lot of mission and ministries. So I can't always, I can't, I'm not a bilocator. I wish I could be in more than one places at once. But so I'm just trying to find some people who can help with the mission to kind of grow it and to expand it. Because first of all, the food is good. The service is fantastic. We just need people. <laughs> we just need people to kind of step up and be willing to work. Um, qualified individuals who um, grasp the importance of the mission and are, are looking to be a part of it, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, let's uh, even just reach out to us. You know, our, our website's pretty active, platinggraceandgrub.com. That's the name of the truck, or just Google Father Leo. You'll see my website, Plating Grace. Reach out to us there. People are reaching out, you know, to uh, 
to support us in any way they possibly can. Now what we need to do is just find mission-hearted people who want to work with food and work with a a unique population. It's hard work. Like I said, working in a restaurant is so much more, it's easier than working on a food truck because because you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to drive this massive truck. You don't have to keep loading food back and forth. And it is hot on that truck, even though the Knights of Columbus, the St. Louis Council helped dedicate a fan, which serves a little bit as a quote-unquote air conditioner. It gets hot on that truck. So it, it is really a labor of love to do this. But it really matters. People come to the, the food truck. They're inspired by the, the message. And they just love the meal. I mean, it's it's just a different approach to f- food truck food. You know, it's not just fried food or, I mean, all that stuff is delicious. So there's no, there's no cut whatsoever on other food trucks, but ours is just very different. And people like it. it. Absolutely unique. I've never seen anything like it. And it's, it is great. It is red. It is flashy. Um, you see it and you know exactly what it is. Um, uh, it is a... Uh, quite a ministry. I know that you have undergone you know, some significant spiritual warfare this year with that truck, the transmission. Um, I, you know, $15,000 for a transmission. I'm looking at $4,000 for a transmission in one of our cars. If, you know, $15,000. Um, I'm sure that was a surprise and not something well, that... experienced was- so many challenges from, you know, um, a broken window, which might not seem like a big deal, but it's got to be specially made. So it's extra expensive. There was a time when one of our guys forgot to put the service window down. And so he drove off with this thing and just kind of sideswiped something and just really messed up the window that had to get replaced and fixed. That took weeks. And then um, one of our guys hit a low hanging tree and knocked the hood off and ripped our ceiling. So it was just, it's just been endless, endless, endless. But somehow, you know, we were People's Choice Awards two years in a row. Uh, So, and I haven't lost my mind yet. There are times when I will certainly lose my patience just because, you know, we're working with one of the most intense things ever, actually food. I mean, you have to be careful. People put this stuff in their mouths. So I'm hyper vigilant when it comes to food safety and, food product and, um, and customer service as well. You know, at, at that same event, but we won the last customer returned the food because she said that it was oversauced. So I'm like, oh, okay, no, no worries. You get a refund. We're sorry that it didn't satisfy you, but it's just that kind of very humbling experience. And I think that's one reason why Jesus wanted us to be pastors you know, we're feeding the flock, calls us to be servants at the table, calls us to be father, where we're providing the daily bread. And, you know, talks about how we will show our love and our authority, quote unquote, with how much of a servant we can be. So I think that everyone in the church needs to learn how to wait on tables, even though that's not what we're supposed to do. We do that in a spiritual way, I think. Everyone needs to learn how to put on an apron because if you don't have an apron, then you might think that you're there to be served. 
think that's an excellent point. You know, from from the be- very beginning, uh, Abraham and Sarah, through Christ Himself and the washing of the feet, the the sense of hospitality, uh, Benedictine hospitality, Benedictine spirituality, hospitality has been woven through our faith as a as a strong thread. And with your mission, you take that thread, that hospitality out. You take it internationally with the speaking tours that you do. Um, You've got it in people's hands with the cookbooks that are in their kitchens, Uh, these video presentations and the food truck. Um, I think you, you call many of us to that level of hospitality and remind us that it is really part of our vocation, no matter which vocation we have, whether we are married, whether we are in the generous single life, um, whether we're in the ministerial priesthood or religious life, that hospitality is part of who we are. Yeah, for sure. Uh, You know, hospitality is rooted in the same word as hospital for healing. And, you know, working with people who are coming out of the prison system or even just disadvantaged communities, they are just kind of shocked by my personal mission to make sure that we try to have regular family meal times together as a team. Um, and, and at one point, people really resisted that. But I just said, you, you work for us. You're going to have to treat us like family. We don't want to be your best friend. We don't even want to be your family. But it has to create a sense of we're responsible to each other and Eating together is the one thing that Jesus did very, very specifically. And that's what, in a sense, really annoyed the other religious leaders. They would never be caught dead eating with a prostitute or a tax collector or a, or a pagan or someone who has leprosy. But Jesus sought them out and ate with them. It was kind of a mark of holiness if you can actually eat with people who might not even agree with you. So, you know, I think our world is in a place where we are constantly divided. I believe that food is what can bring us together. It's the most religious thing that God gives to us. That's why Jesus became the Eucharist, food, bring us together. And um, until, until that time when people can just learn how to serve each other and be present to each other at a meal, And that's why I wrote the books is to teach people, not just recipes, but why do you eat together? And then in my most recent book called Saving the Family, I teach families how to eat together. And that sounds ridiculous, but during the different generations of family life, from when they're toddlers to teens or, you know, their own, your children are now parents. How do families still come together and eat together? That's what that book is all about. Um. On that subject of the family, I've got a lot of young friends who are just recently married. You know, they're anticipating their kids coming or, you know, they've got a little one. Um, But right now it's a very small family. It might just be, you know, them and their spouse or it might be them and, and a little one. So what advice would you give to young adults who are just starting out, starting out for families of their own? Um, what would you say to them? Make it regular. Make your mealtime regular. Teach the very basics of saying a prayer together. Don't be afraid to discipline your child. Teach them gratitude. You know, don't turn your child into a spoiled brat where if they don't like something, you make them something else. You know, there's got to be discipline when it comes to the food because it just helps develop mm-hmm. the child's palate, but also their sense of, of belonging, that they are part of the family. They're not the what orbits, you know, the family doesn't orbit around you. You're not like the center of everything. And it's also important, especially for young couples to make sure 
that they can spend time and share a meal together. You know, I, I always say once a month, monthly dinner dates, a month anniversary. And that's why I wrote the book, Spicing Up Married Life, because they need to strengthen their love for each other as husband and wife. You know, their responsibility is to be a parent, but their vocation was to be married to each other. So I want to encourage couples to make sure that they're taking time and doing what they did before they got married. And that was going on dates and talking and, and, and being intimate with each other around a meal because meal is an intimate experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why people criticize Jesus. Um, he was actually in the presence and very intimately involved. I didn't say sexually or immorally, but he was just very present to the people. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jewish leaders at the time, they were not able to do. The scribes and Pharisees and lawyers and priests, they were very distant from people. So a meal can bring us together. That's a great point. Thank you. As a bioethicist, um, often at the, especially when I deal with issues of end of life, uh, the questions of food and hydration um, are so big. Um, the The concept of food in the family is huge. And that sense of, of food bringing nurturing. Um, I can't tell you how many times if my own father, when my, my mom had Alzheimer's, um, and was having a very difficult time eating when she was in a in a, a long term care facility dedicated to with an Alzheimer's wing. Um, my dad, till the day he died, um, brought her a Culver shake every day and tried to be there when she was being fed. Um, it was a matter of the love and the nurturing that came with the bringing of food. Um, food is is tied to so much of who we are and what we do. And that sense of nurturing, as Grace Marie was saying, you know, even with these young families beginning there with with the teeny ones, um, just passing that on from one generation to the next. And there's such a disconnect in our culture now that often that isn't passed on. Correct. So trying to bring back a sense of the family meal because of all of the statistics and studies that talk about the benefit. A regular family meal reduces drug addiction tendencies in, in teenagers, reduces, you know, out of married uh, sexual expression, reduces, um, reduces obesity, and it improves testing scores. All of that happens around a family meal. It's common sense, but unfortunately our world isn't, Certainly now, especially, they're not even practicing common sense. So what I'm doing with the, the work that I do, it's, it, it can look a little silly and maybe even a little um, dog and pony show. I've been accused of just being a showman because I just cook and talk. But that's only because people aren't actually listening to what I'm saying. You know, I, I make relevance to the sacramentality of food and how does it play out in the deeper feeding of 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 what people are hungering for. I mean, look, I, I make pretty good food. You know, I beat Bobby Flay in a competition. I've cooked around the world. But what really strikes people is just the thought of what the power of food can do. I mean, that's why Mother Priest is a saint. And that's what Jesus wanted to do when he gave us himself. And he said, do this, eat this, drink this in memory of me. It's just a piece of bread and a drop of wine. But infused with God. It is his body, blood, soul, and divinity. 
we don't all have that power to make, you know, fried chicken or mashed potatoes or turkey and stuffing into the body and blood of Christ. But if we invite God to the table, it can become a sacred moment for many people. It's interesting that Thanksgiving, it's not even a religious holiday, but everyone prays before they eat that day. Interesting. You know, and all of our feast days, we need to bring our feast days back. I'm very privileged to be working with um, an author now, Michael Foley and Regnery Publications. And we're writing the, the second part of Drinking with the Saints. I'm writing the Dining with the Saints. So just being able to, to remind people that food isn't just a thing for the body. I think when I, when I think about the priesthood, I think of spiritual fatherhood. Um, and, you know, we look at our, our country and the crisis of fatherhood that we have. You mentioned the statistics regarding um, uh, incarceration, out-of-wedlock pregnancies. So much of our, our social ills are tied to this, this crisis of fatherhood. And people are hungering for the father that many do not have in the home. Um, and I think that puts a tremendous pressure on the clergy, on the priesthood, and the need for spiritual fathers to really be there and nurture um, with what you do. You know, fathers feed, fathers feed their children. Uh, scripturally, if, if, you're, if you ask your father uh, for bread, would he give you a scorpion? You know, um, fathers feed their children, and that's what you are doing. Um, if you had advice for um, young men who are in formation right now, um, what nugget of advice would you give them uh, in terms of discernment, in terms of where they're, how to be attuned to where God is leading them uh, for their particular ministry? I'm sure this was not something that was on your radar when you sat there in the NAC day one, um, but you followed God's will beautifully and have developed this ministry. What would you say to other young men in formation? Well, you know, there's not one piece of advice that helps. So just a few things to consider. Pay attention to how you spend time with the Eucharist. You know, just pay attention to your devotion to the Eucharist because it's what sustains you. Pay attention to how you spend time with the saints, praying the rosary, invoking a saint's intercession, because they're in the company of Jesus. The word company means bread sharing, sharing bread, kumpanis. So ask yourself, how do you spend the company of the saints? And then the third thing is, you know, find out who you invite to dinner and who has invited you to dinner. Because how, how you eat a normal meal is going to eventually be translated in how you celebrate the Mass. It's, it's just basic. If you rush through your food, I, I can only guarantee you're probably going to be a fast Mass guy. You've got to know the balance, you know, how to be formal, but also how to be familiar. Um, just monitor how you eat, you know, and, 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 and the reason why I say that is because Jesus was very clear when he sent his disciples. He said, you know, eat what is set before you. And in whatever house you enter, have a meal with them. And so it requires us to not be cliquish. It requires us to not only eat with the rich donors. It requires us as a father to not only be formal, you know, the sacred meal, but to be familiar. Make sure you spend time with your parishioners. 
No, you can't go and eat all the time at your parishioner's house. You'd be wasting your time and the church's time. But maybe you could have supper clubs at your church, you know, and just sometimes when the parish just comes together and celebrates a feast day, you got to be available to them. So I always say to priests and I'll say to seminarians, who invites you to dinner? Who have you invited to dinner? That's going to speak a lot about your spirituality of the horizontal understanding of the Eucharist. The vertical is Jesus and us. We get that. I hope people get that. But it also has to, in order to complete the dimensions of the cross, there has to be a horizontal understanding of the Eucharist as well. On a similar similar tack, if you you know speak to the the formators, um, what advice would you give for them, having seen you know everything that you have? Um, what advice would you give to those who are forming uh, our, our our priests? Well, you know, I think they have to be authentic to themselves. Um, I remember very clearly having a, a healthy fear of all of my formators. But every one of my formators wanted nothing more than to have them eventually come up and, and to be able to call you by your first name. You know, that's, that's pretty shocking. You know, it's like, I want to be able to give you the confidence to be able to call me by my first name as a brother. And so there has to be a real vulnerability on the part of these formators to be able to hear where they're coming from. I mean, we have a great responsibility of deciding whether or not they get ordained or, you know, get kicked out. That's a huge responsibility. And I think that vulnerability matters. And I can just tell you that, you know, when I was a seminary, um, I was the director of pastoral formation, the head of the chair of the, um, the founding chair of the pastoral formation program and then teaching homiletics and spirituality. Oh my gosh. It was almost as if the seminarians did not want you to be human, did not want you to be vulnerable. They just wanted to just learn the information and boom, get a good grade, move on. There's got to be much more integration that happens. So if a seminary professor or faculty can help integrate the faith, by, you know, a little bit of their own vulnerability and sharing what God has done for them and through them, that gives seminarians a lot of hope. Um, the kind of seminarians that really took to, to the kind of work that I was doing were the ones who had good human formation. The ones who were really perplexed and challenged by the work that I did were, were really just trying to create an intellectual-only approach to seminary formation. And there are four pillars, you know, and the most important, according to St. John Paul II, is human. And then in no specific order, but we always deem spirituality as, as key because that's your relationship with God, the intellect, because you got to be able to talk about God intelligently. But then that pastoral is how do you put all of that into practice? Mm-hmm. So being able to look at all levels and making sure that you as a seminary professor or a formation director, that you're practicing those virtues too. On that subject of um, formation and of ministry, um, I just recently, uh, a little less than a year ago, became a youth minister. And you mentioned that youth ministry was something that you also had had some particular experience in. So speaking to the youth ministers out there, um, any advice that you would like to give us? Because like you, you realize as a youth minister that it's so much of it is on the families, you know, you can't, you can only give these kids what you can and then they go home and maybe they forget it because it's not reiterated within the families, but you also want to bring them together into a sort of youth and parish family, incorporate them into the life of the church. So any wisdom on that? 
Yeah, two things. One is going to be sincerity. Um, just working with teens are very troubled these days. So I think they're just looking for someone who's going to be sincere and truly caring for them. And the second thing is quality. Uh, I've just seen too many youth programs that are just so poorly done. They're just shoddy. They're corny. I wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah. I'm a priest. Uh, We've got to put our money where our mouth is. You know, all of these programs on TV and and on the Internet, they spend a ton of money just to get the attention of young people. And, you know, how much do churches really spend for youth ministers? They Youth ministers don't make any money at all. I mean, I know because I was one. So we have to start rearranging our finances and putting our money where our mouth is. We always say, oh, the youth are the future. But then, you know, like you put on a program and barely want to spend any money for it. So mm-hmm. the video looks just corny and silly and kind of out of date. You know, you get a music group, but you don't actually spend money to pay for a good musician. And so the music is just flat and kind mm-hmm. of awkward. You know, you go on a trip and, and, just, you know, I mean, that's why I love some of the organizations that I work with. They put on a very good presentation of what excellence requires if you're going to do youth ministry well. So just two words, again, sincerity and quality. That can be really helpful. You are involved in so much between the your foundation, the um, uh, Plating Grace, the uh, food truck, uh, the books, the writing. Um how, you know, how do you keep it all together? Um, yeah, I don't know if I do, to be honest with you. I've got a great team of people. We're a very small team, but they're all triple threats. They have many talents, and they use it generously. Uh, but also, I think we just have to know that not everything is done all at the same time. I'm writing a book now. I'm focusing on it. But just a month ago, I was in Europe filming for my show. And before that, I was worried about the food truck. And so... It kind of comes in spurts. And I think I'm no different than a parent who's got a lot of balls in the air that they're trying to juggle too. And I think I'm very blessed because my spouse, the church is probably way more forgiving to me than maybe spouses are to each other. And so I I think that I have, um, I don't want to say an advantage, but I just want to say that there is a lot of grace that the church gives to me. Because all I'm trying to do is promote the mission of the church. That's all it is. And there are going to be times when I really screw up. And that's just part of life, you know. So I think when you ask how do you do it, I I just say I don't necessarily do it. I'm just trying to do it. And there are going to be times when I fail. But I think a sign of faithfulness is when you get up and you try again. Or when you're humble enough to realize that just does not work. And so I'm just not going to be able to do that. And then if you have the abilities, if God has given you a charism or a gift or a talent and you don't use it, woe to you. You know, that's the kind of person Jesus will spit out of his mouth at the judgment day. So, again, I don't know if I am doing it. I'm just trying. That's all I'm trying to do is try. You've got an amazing amount of of stuff going on and an amazing amount of talent. Um, You've got, you know, I've looking at the ITES, the Institute for the Theological Encounter with Science and Technology, the Food, Logic, and Creation seminar that's coming up, and took a peek at your video for that. Um, you connect with people on all different levels, uh, from the folks who are coming in from the, the street to to buy a, a quesadilla, uh, to those uh, formators who are sitting there uh, listening to the program. There is so much. Um, when you go home at night and you cook yourself a meal, what's your favorite meal? Mm. Whatever's honestly in the refrigerator. I mean, (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, last night I had some leftover crab cakes and I used some of my Italian seaside sauce and I just made a, uh, a, a, a crab pasta dish. You know, before that I kind of had um, some, what did I have? Oh, I had a, some leftover meat from a restaurant and so I just made some beef fried rice. So it's honestly whatever you have is what you, I mean, and I don't have a lot in my refrigerator as well because I'm hardly ever home. So I have to kind of go shopping the way Italians or Europeans would do a little bit at a time. And, uh, and, and honestly, I, I enjoy eating alone sometimes because I'm always with people. This gives me a chance just to be a little quiet and, and do something where I don't have to make it pretty, but I will make it tasty. Father, it has been a joy to have you with us uh, for uh, WCAT Radio's Vows, Vocations, and Promises Discerning the Call of Love. I thank you so much for the time that you spent with my listeners here, uh, for sharing your story, your vocation story, um, and for inspiring us. Uh, would you be so kind as to close us with a prayer? Sure. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for these and all thy benefits which we've received through Christ our Lord, and may the souls of all the faithful departed. Through the mercy of God, rest in peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, God's beloved. I'm Annabelle Mosley, author, professor of theology, and host of Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. I invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. God is always with you. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.